You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carl Stebbings and Simon Waltorton. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 11 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stebbings and not with me in the studio this week is Simon Waltorton. Simon's unfortunately having to look after his wife, Lynn, who's uh, quite poorly at the moment. So uh, he's at home looking after uh, Lynn and the girls as well. So uh, a big uh, hello to uh, to uh, Simon and Lynn, and uh, we wish Lynn a speedy recovery. Um, but I have got with me in, uh, well, not in the studio, but via Skype, a very special guest. And those of you who uh, do download and listen to all the podcasts, the Aviation Podcast, will know this person. Um, you should do because he produces uh, a fantastic uh, podcast each week, uh, one that inspired me to do what I'm doing now. And uh, so I'm going to say welcome to the uh, show, Captain Jeff. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. And I'm a substandard substitution for Simon, but I'll do my best. (laughs) No, it's uh, it's great, uh, Jeff, that you've you've accepted uh, my invitation to be on the show and stand in for Simon. That's very good of you. Well, it's my pleasure. Excellent, excellent. So Jeff is going to uh, join me with uh, some news, bits and pieces that I've got uh, coming up for you next. And also, uh, we're going to have a little chat about how Jeff got to where he is now, uh, flying around uh, all uh, all around the America. Or where, 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 how, how sort of far wide do you fly, Jeff, actually? Well, the uh, you know, it's all based on the airplane that you fly and the, uh, uh, the airplane that I fly for my airline, I guess. Um, should I just call it Acme? Because that's what I call yeah, it uh, yeah. when I <laughs> okay. That's it. Uh, the uh, the real airline I fly for is one of the uh, uh, easily recognizable uh, major legacy U.S. carriers, which flies internationally uh, here, based in the United States, uh, but it flies all around the world, and uh, it really depends on whatever your airplane the airplane is that you are assigned to and where it flies. And so people will say something like, uh, you know, what is your route or where are you qualified to fly? And so basically you're qualified to fly anywhere that that particular airplane flies for your fleet or for your airline. And uh, I fly the MD-88, MD-90, McDonnell Douglas uh, products, sometimes affectionately called or referred to as the Mad Dog and uh, we fly that mostly based here in Atlanta. We have bases all around the country, and each base kind of flies, uh, concentrates in a little bit different areas of the country. But uh, we mostly fly in the eastern United States, a little bit of the Midwest, Midwestern United States, and then occasionally we also get out to the West Coast. And uh, also the Caribbean, uh, Mexico, and Canada. So it's a relatively localized kind of uh, regional flying, I'd say. Excellent. So we're going to talk in uh, in more depth later on in the show with uh, with Jeff about uh, all the wonderful things that he does flying. So we're going to wrap, play, as usual, the news jingle and carry on with the UK news. So kicking off this week's news then, we've got some Ryanair news. Uh, Ryanair has announced that uh, their January traffic for this year 
is up 5% from last year. That means that uh, last year their figures came in at 4.3 million for January. This year they're up to 4.6 million passengers in January. That's up 5%. So that's good news for Ryanair. They've uh, had a bit of a rethink with their uh, fares and their fare policies, which have made things a lot easier to fly Ryanair. And also, uh, as of uh, the beginning of February, they had the um, allocated seating option now, and they're now issuing their tickets with uh, an allocated seat number, which is great. So, Jeff, your low-cost carrier, I suppose, would that be Southwest? Well, you know, a lot of people call it a low-cost carrier, um, and I guess technically it is, uh, but it's getting larger and larger here in this country and it's um, flying more and more um, destinations, hub destinations. And so we're seeing it a lot where we operate, you know, in the, the major airlines. Uh, whereas it used to be, you know, kind of a point to point operation and uh, flying into and out of usually some of the smaller airports that serve some of the large metropolitan areas. But uh, as I said, it's a, it's an evolving thing. And uh, But I guess you could consider Southwest a low-cost carrier. We also have um, other uh, independent airlines that are um, what you'd term low-cost, like Spirit, um, JetBlue. Uh, yeah, so we have several here in the U.S. Yeah, they're kind of, we sort of class them here as sort of buses, really. Um, mm-hmm. The EasyJet and the Ryanair thing, where you can, you can just literally buy a ticket online, you know, grab a taxi to the airport and hop on board straight away. And the fares and the fares are good, to be fair. But um, I think uh, from my personal um, experience of Ryanair and EasyJet, you get you get just that slightly more uh, personal um, um, uh, experience when you fly with EasyJet. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, trouble is, Ryanair does always come out on top with price. <laughs> And they fly, yeah. f- and they fly from the airports that are closer um, to here as well. So, which is good. So, next piece of news um, is on the Boeing site, and this is uh, regarding uh, British Airways. And British Airways are looking to replace their Boeing seven four seven four hundred fleet with the new triple seven X. Um, the world's uh, largest plane maker, Boeing, may win an order for its new 777X wide-body jet from British Airways as the carrier looks to replace its uh, 747 jumbos. The International Consolidated Airlines Group, uh, known as IAG, is uh, known in full as the uh, one of the biggest uh, airline groups in the world. And they're looking to upgrade with the fleet uh, with British Airways and also introduce the Boeing Dr- uh, 787 Dreamliner as well into the fleet and also as uh, a lot of you know in the UK and and um, and, and across the globe British Airways have now got their A380 their first one and uh, they got that one last year so they're looking to replace uh, more of the 747-400s with the Super Jumbos and don't forget as well the uh, 787 Dreamliner as well which will come into service soon with British Airways so that's uh, good news for Boeing there. Good news uh, for, for you guys across the pond as well, Jeff. With uh, Absolutely. Definitely more orders coming there from, well, from British Airways. So that's good. Oh, blimey. Too much coffee here I'm drinking here. I've got a cup of coffee here beside me, but uh, nearly all gone now. So, uh, yes, yeah, so the competitor to the Dreamliner as well, which uh, could be another... Um, 
possibility for BA would be the A350, the Airbus 350XWB, which is also uh, another possibility for British Airways to take on as a replacement as well for its long-range fleet. So good news then, uh, like I said, for Boeing. That could uh, prove to create, obviously, more uh, more work um, and more orders for the uh, airline manufacturer. Next piece of news then is from Business Traveller. Uh, this one is about Scoot Airlines. Have you heard about, heard of Scoot before? I have not. No, no. Um, they're uh, owned by Singapore Airlines. They're as kind of a budget subsidiary, and they're looking to uh, equip their Boeing, uh, Boeing 787 Dreamliner with the densest layout yet as seen with up to 375 passengers when they're being or being penned to be delivered later this year. It's uh, the densest 787 layout seen to date and uh, it's going to equip its 787 Dreamliners with 35 premium economy uh, seats configured in the 232 layout and no fewer than 340 slimline economy seats configured in a 333 layout. It's true that the Boeing 787 in question uh, are going to be the newer 900 series, which are longer versions of the 787-800s that are currently in service with other carriers. But nevertheless, a maximum capacity of 375 passengers is roughly the same as certain other airliners that can accommodate, um, such as this 777-300. Have you been on the 300, uh, the 777-300 before, Jeff? Was that one aircraft you've um, or flown in or...? I have uh, flown in as a passenger and as a uh, jump seater, and it's a it's a wonderful airplane. I've not flown it myself, but I've flown on it. Yeah, well, uh, we flew on a triple seven with Emirates, and uh, I've got to say, it's, it's a, a fantastic aircraft to fly on the triple seven. Very spacious, very spacious. Um, yeah, it's really nice uh, if you are going to be up in the cockpit in the jump seat. Uh, the they have two very large, comfortable. Uh, jump seats for oh, wow. use for uh, pilots up in the uh, cockpit area. And uh, let me tell you, there are some airplanes whose jump seats are uh, atrocious and very uncomfortable. And so when I uh, head out to California quite often to visit my mom and my sister out there, I always try to see if we can or I can get on the triple uh, seven jump seat uh, because it's much more comfortable. Uh, that's that's one of the privileges, you know, that um, I really miss um from being as you know, being a child, and that from years ago because I'm 37 mm-hmm. now, aging away as I am. Um, oh, you're so old. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my one of my biggest um, um, you know things that I loved as a child was being able to visit the um, flight deck on flights. Um, being an only child, I, I spent quite a lot of time um, going on holiday and stuff with my parents and. Um, Although I do, I do enjoy holidays. Don't get me wrong; I love uh, love being on holiday and, and going abroad. But the flying part, you know, has probably fueled my passion for aviation and flying. And that was always my love. Was the first thing I'd do as soon as we got up in the air was be to call the cabin attendant, you know, the flight attendant, and say, "Excuse me, could, could I possibly visit the flight deck?" And um, you know, nine times out of ten, uh, it, it would all, it would be a yes, yes, of course. But obviously, um, after nine eleven, that all stopped, which is is a, is a terrible shame. Do, do you miss Do you miss that aspect of uh, flying, Jeff? Uh yes, I do. 
having having people come at you, children and uh, well, adults as well. Well, you know, we we still um, the door is open uh, to the cockpit when people are boarding and. And uh, now the airplane that I fly, you know, I mentioned the MD-88, MD-90 is not the most spacious uh, airliners. The uh, uh, diameter of the uh, cabin is a little bit narrower than most narrow bodies. And uh, the area, uh, the boarding area of the airplane is quite crowded. And so it doesn't really lend itself uh, for people to, you know, stop and have a conversation with us in the cockpit because it's just so tight up there. But uh, it's still, you know, possible to do. And if people have an interest in you know, taking a look at our front office, uh, they're more than welcome to do so. Uh, but I do miss the days where we could, you know, actually have people come up um, other than just, you know, boarding and, and deboarding or uh, whatever. So I've been lucky on a, on a few occasions since um, in the last few years. We, we um, tend to fly to the island of Malta. Uh, which I don't know if you've heard of uh, Malta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we do. We normally uh, tend to go back um, normally each year. Um, the fact my my family have been going back for years now, and uh, we talk, normally tend to fly Ryanair. And as you know, Ryanair fly the the seven three seven eight hundred series aircraft. And mm-hmm. um, uh, one well, one time uh, about a year ago, we we were delayed taking off um, coming back to the UK I think it was an air traffic control um, issue and I just just asked on the off chance is it possible to visit the flight deck and um, they, they come back said yes that's fine and I spent nearly three quarters of an hour uh, on the flight deck chatting with the, um, the first officer and the captain on, on the flight deck and it was I was I was smitten I, t- I, I just couldn't have been any more happier if, if uh, you know it just made it Put the cherry on top, I should say, for the um, mm-hmm. for the end of the holiday, and I really do. I still I do miss it. The uh, you know I really really miss the the you know the the way you could just you know up, ask and go up at the front and stuff during flight as well. Mm-hmm. But I have yeah, to I say, don't what, I don't know know exactly what happened to uh, change all of that. Some event. Mm, yes, it was some event. <laughs> Something back in two thousand one. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Terrible, but. Yeah. Um, it spoiled it for spoiled it for all us um, aviation geeks, unfortunately. But yeah. the best the best one yet, though, Jeff, is uh, my flight deck visit on the L ten eleven. I'll never forget that. That will be. Yeah. Uh, I've got the pictures. Uh, still got the pictures to prove that, which my mother found for me. Um, I think I emailed you the pictures that, um, mm-hmm. that I took on the flight deck of the L ten eleven. That was with uh, British Caledonian or Caledonian Airways mm-hmm. here in the UK. Um, but that was the older series of um, TriStar. The I think it was a two hundred series, a slightly longer mm-hmm. um, than the later series of five hundred. Um, because you yourself, you flew the TriStar as well, didn't you, you Jeff? I did, and uh, it's probably my favorite airplane uh, that I've flown of all the airplanes I've flown, and uh, just a wonderfully engineered, beautifully built, uh, great flying. Airplane, very comfortable and uh, great hand flying airplane as well. So, I, I miss it. It's a shame because uh, I don't know if you know, Jeff. The RAF are currently in the process of um, phasing out all their Tri Stars now here in the UK. The ones that are at uh, RAF Bryce Norton, um, they use as uh, tanker trans or tanker and transport aircraft. But they are this year. I think they're going to be phasing near, all of them out this year, which is a shame. Yeah, I saw you write something about that, and uh, I share your sadness. 
Now, I think they're going before their time. I really, I, I know they're an old aircraft, you know, they're an old airframe and they, they probably aren't the most um, economical of aircraft to fly. But I just, I don't know, I just think they're going before their time, Jeff. Mm-hmm. I agree. And some of them are Pan Am, ex-Pan Am aircraft as well, aren't they? Um, some of the ones they have, ex-Pan Am and ex-BA mm-hmm. Tri-Stars. But they are the, the, the 500 series. They're, they're slightly, if you look at them, they're slightly shorter fuselage length on those. Yeah, the one that um, that I flew quite a bit when I flew the domestic category of the L-1011 at Acme uh, was the Dash 1, and that was the one that was actually the longest, held the most passengers, at least in our configuration, mm. 302 uh, passengers total. And then we also flew the 250 and the 500 series, and those were both shorter uh, fuselages and uh, bigger engines, more powerful engines, uh, better brakes and uh, held more fuel for longer longer range uh, I see. Mm. longer range yeah oh wow well let's let's hope that at least um um one keeps flying somewhere in the uh, in the world i think the is it the las vegas sands i think have got um got a 500 series passenger um setup um series um, tristar still flying i think it's still flying i don't know if you've seen that one the no las, i haven't yeah the las vegas sands corporation i think it goes as uh, they've still got a TriStar, which they use. But moving swiftly on, because we can't sit here and talk about TriStars all the episode. Well, I can't I'd love we? to. <laughs> I would love to. I'd love to. <laughs> so next piece of news then is from our local airport here, uh, not far from us, Norwich Airport or Norwich International Airport, as um, as they like to be called. And they're updating their baggage handling system at the airport and work has begun to see significant improvement in baggage handling operations at Norwich International Airport. The improvements are being carried out in a live environment to ensure that no interruption occurs to passenger services while they're being completed. And they're expected to be completed before the half term in May. The major benefits for Norwich International Airport and its passengers will be a minimisation of the risk of failure and improvement of the overall system reliability. And Vidaland Industries, uh, the UK subsidiary of the world's leading baggage handling system provider, was awarded the contract to carry out the work following an extensive, uh, extensive site survey that revealed the need for an update. So Norwich Airport, uh, just so you know, Jeff, that's about 20 minutes from me. It's class, they class it as an international airport, but um, there's not a huge amount of air, um, aircraft fly from there. It tends to be the... Um, the 757 and the 737s that um, fly from there to destinations in Europe. But it's not a, um, a hugely busy airport for passenger aircraft, but uh, it's, it's a nice airport to fly from. But the trouble is, um, as we, we've talked about on previous podcasts, uh, me and Simon, is that uh, they tend to charge a quite a hefty premium to fly from the airport to to us you know people who live close uh, you end up paying it's quite like it's normally about sort of 50 60 pounds premium uh, on top of the normal flight fare to fly from there i don't know whether that's the same your side of you know if things work that way where you are jeff the smaller airports charging more to fly from more the more convenient airports charging right. more to fly from yep uh, that that's uh, pretty much the same story here and I do remember you and Simon uh, discussing this. I, was it your last episode? I think you were talking yeah. about the convenience of uh, flying out of Nor- Norwich and uh, other uh, smaller, closer by airports. 
Yeah, Stansted Airport, um, okay. London Stansted, which is an hour and a half from us, I suppose, or an hour, well, about an hour and a quarter from us in the car, um, is a lot bigger airport, you know, covers, um, they fly to the States from there and, and that. Um, and it's it's cheaper uh, to fly from there than it is to fly from Norwich, which is 20 minutes away. Um mm-hmm. It's just it's bizarre, really. I think if if Norwich did uh, get more flights, more airlines in, I think the airport itself would um, would benefit. You know, they'd see a, a higher passenger number definitely go through the airport. Plus, we also pay the the passenger tax fee as well, Jeff. Um, mm-hmm. Which, off the top of my head, I think is ten pounds per passenger. Don't know what that equates to in dollars. Um, but it's just a fee that you pay um, for the privilege of flying from Norwich Airport, which is. A shame, really, but um, hopefully um, this year should uh, see things starting to get really busy at the airport. They are they're trying to expand and um, build build new um, hangar buildings and uh, bits. And obviously, with the baggage handling system being updated, it will be uh, it will make things a lot more easier to um, progress through the airport as a passenger. Mm-hmm. So, next piece of news is. Uh, British Airways, and uh, they've launched their new route uh, with the Airbus A380 to Johannesburg, which started um, on the 12th of February. And they launched the, the new route on their 380 by holding a fashion show on board the aircraft. And uh, they actually had the fashion show whilst the aircraft was in the air, and it was presented by Harrods. And it showcased uh, British Airways' five billion pounds investment in new aircraft, and uh, the investment, which included twelve Airbus A380 aircraft, which uh, are going to be in daily service by 2017. And British Airways have also ordered 24 787 Dreamliners for the fleet as well. But the fashion show, which was held on board the A380, had 200 guests on board, and they showcased some summer collections that are offered at Harrods from London, and from various designers, uh, Jimmy Choo being one of them, and uh, Astley Clark, Monica Vindar, and Sean Lian, and Lara Boschnik. Uh, got the pictures here online of the fashion show. Looks kind of bizarre. Uh, models going up and down the aisles, wearing various dresses and uh, summer stuff. Uh, but like I said, it was to promote the Johannesburg route, which uh, is going to be the third route uh, on for the Airbus A380. Um, so it's good news for British Airways. They're going to have that route. Let's hope that uh, they bring some more routes on during this year. Have you uh, have you flown on the 380, Jeff? Or? I have not. And uh, the closest that I've been to one... Uh, is on the inner taxiway taxiing out to the <laughs> runway in Atlanta. Um, I believe it's uh, Korean Air okay, is, yeah. uh, using the 380 to fly into Atlanta right now. Wow, I bet that's just, <laughs> I can imagine the uh, the MD um, next to an A380. That must. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You know what's interesting about it, and I don't know. Maybe it's their the particular mod- model that they're using um, into Atlanta, but it just doesn't seem that long. It's kind of a short, squatty kind of a, a, I don't know, physical nature to it, uh, at least when it's uh, docked to the uh, jetway when we're going by. It just doesn't seem like a that big of an airplane compared to when we see the 747-400 parked uh, at, a, at another concourse. It didn't, for some reason, the 747-400 looks like a bigger airplane. I know it's not, but uh, it's just interesting. The uh, I guess that, that, that short, squatty, double-deck, 
kind of uh, configuration just uh, gives the appearance of being not so large. Yeah, I, I, I look just looking at the file pictures here of the three eight and the seven four seven side by side, and it, it does it, it. It's quite bizarre, really, because the the Airbus is a bigger aircraft, but um, I think it's because we're so used to the the seven four seven as being, you know, a, a large aircraft. Um, it just it does look bigger. It looks more, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. Uh, we 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 as pilots, you know, we we sometimes judge and you know have a different opinion about things than uh, than other people. And I have never once heard anybody say, uh, looking at the uh, Airbus 380, saying, you know, I hope to get to fly that airplane someday. But I can guarantee you, almost everybody I've ever flown with. You know, if you ask them, okay, what is it you want to fly before you end your career? And almost everyone would say, oh, the 747. I hope I get a chance to fly that airplane. There's just something special about uh, about that bird. Yeah, I th- I think it's, I, I've said this before, but I think it's a better looking aircraft as well, the 747. Yeah. I really I do. I know a lot of people will disagree with me on that one. Um, really? Probably get loads of emails. But yeah, because some people do do think the uh, 380 does look, look I just... They say it looks like a, you know a much more um, refined aircraft, but I I just I don't know. It's not grown, I, it's not grown on me yet. The three eighty. I think it, I think it really depends upon the paint scheme. Number one, mm. and and secondly, it, it uh, to me it's like one of those things where you know it's it's something that only a mother could love. <laughs> the build, but it is to be fair. <laughs> That's Air, my opinion. Airbus, <laughs> they, they they really have produced a a, a really fantastic aircraft, and it, it's oh, yeah. popular. It's really popular. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Emirates have ordered um, a lot more aircraft to add to their Airbus uh, three hundred and eighty fleet. And um, you know, with my experience that we had last month when we flew to Dubai with Emirates on the three hundred and eighty, it is it's it's a nice aircraft to fly on. You know, oh sure, it, yeah. I mean, you know, passenger comforts and technology, and I mean, it has it all. It's a it's a fantastic airplane. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, as, as a, a a personal aesthetic kind of a, a view of the of the airplanes, uh, just uh, just not that attractive to me. Anyway, <laughs> and don't send your email to <laughs> Carlos and get mad at him. You can get mad at Captain Jeff. <laughs> No, no, send me some email. We need some more. We need some more uh, <laughs> listener feedback. Send me the emails. <laughs> okay. I'll forward, the, I'll forward them on to Jeff. Don't worry. Don't oh, worry. no, no, no. no. <laughs> I, please don't. I don't need any more. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're so busy all the time. But don't don't you think, Jeff, I've, I've said this to Simon um, before we've recorded podcasts in the past um, few, a few weeks and that before, that I'd, I'd, I'd love to see Boeing um, produce a, a double-decker. You know, well, a stretched, a stretched top deck. Anyway, I I thought now you know I'm not an expert in this, but I thought I'd read or heard somebody say years ago that uh, the original plan for the 747 was to eventually be you know that that stretched upper deck all the way back to the tail. So basically, you know, designed from the start as potentially a double deck uh, airliner, uh, but I they think just started with the. Uh, I bump really in the do. front but you know that could be wrong i i don't know for sure but i just think it would look like a fantastic aircraft if they based it on the original 747 but just stretched that top deck just that little bit longer i just think it would yeah. look like a fantastic aircraft i, really I think do. so too yeah right moving swiftly on then next piece of news is regarding the um uh, airbus 
company, and that's uh, Airbus winning an $8.3 billion order from Amedio at the Singapore Air Show. European plane maker Airbus has won an order for 20 A380 Super Jumbo Jets worth $8.3 billion or £5 billion at list prices from UK-based leasing company Amedio. And I hope I've said that right. I should do. Uh, the deal with Amedio, which used to be called Doric Lease Corporation, was finalised at the Singapore Air Show, which is Asia's biggest aerospace event. The provisional purchase was announced at the Paris Air Show in June, and the order marks a vote of confidence in the world's biggest passenger aircraft, which has seen its sales slow up recently. Mark Lapidus, chief executive of Amido, said that of the unique benefits of the A380 was its onboard space and comfort combination at the per-seat unit cost. And as world air traffic continues to double every 15 years and airport infrastructure and slots do not, the A380 is the best solution for airlines to capture that growth and build passenger loyalty. So that's good news then for Airbus. They're uh, secured that order um, along with the other airlines that have ordered the Airbus over the last few months. So Airbus are going to be really busy. I think they're going to have to uh, employ loads more people, which is good news for um, for the people living with the certain uh, countries that produce parts for the Airbus. Um, it's one of the places I'd love to go um, is across to your side of the uh, pond, uh, Jeff, and visit. Uh, it'd be nice to visit the Boeing factory. I must admit that's one of the things that uh, I'd like to do before um, before me and Gemma have children. <laughs> She'll kill me for saying that. <laughs> Um, yeah, definitely one of the things I'd love to do is visit the Boeing field. I take they do do trips around. Um, I think uh, I've heard on other podcasts they do do trips around the Boeing site. I've heard that as well. I have not uh, experienced that myself, but uh, I I think they do. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one of the things I'd love to do. So um, I have to save up some more pennies for that. Work more hours. I think <laughs> lots of pennies. <laughs> yeah, lots of pennies. That's it. Next piece of news then from Travel Weekly. This one is uh, Boeing uh, fixing to work bottlenecks in the Dreamliner production. Boeing says it's aware of bottlenecks in production of the 787 Dreamliner and is working to fix the problems. The manufacturer was responded to claims that its plant in North Charleston, South Carolina, cannot finish thousands of work orders and is sending pieces to a larger plant at Everett in the Washington state to be completed so that the company can maintain its 10 aircraft a month production rate. Reuters reported that some employees who work on the aircraft are calling into question Boeing's ability to, to uh, sustain that pace. They claim that the two factories that assemble the 787 are struggling to cope with a ramp up in the production that started late last year and a huge backlog of unfinished work threatens to slow output. The company has hired hundreds of contract workers in South Carolina and created special teams at its Everett's base. And they're inspecting new aircraft and taking on extra tasks known as travelled work because it has moved from South Carolina to Everett. So, Jeff, Boeing 787 Dreamliner, something that's come up quite a few times on the podcast with me and Simon. Um, obviously, you obviously you've reported on your podcast. Um, I've never heard troubles. of this airplane. <laughs> do you do you think they'll do you think they'll they'll they will eventually iron out all the creases with this aircraft, Jeff? Because it's it's been going on quite a long time now, hasn't it? It really has, and I I don't know. You know, you 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 keep hearing about it, and you don't know how much of that is 
because of the increased emphasis and focus on the airplane or if something was really going on with with this particular model of an airplane. Uh, it just seems that it's having more than its fair share of troubles. Yeah, I was supposed to fly home um, from Yeah, I saw that holiday. and you were very disappointed. I know. <laughs> I'd spent hours uh, before we went away um, researching flights and stuff to come home and I, I specifically booked um, that particular time of day flight to come home on the Dreamliner. And, and and like I said on the on the podcast previously, we ended up flying home on a A330, um, which is fine. I, you know, I've not been on a 330 before, so that was my first time. But uh, it was quite a uh, dated Airbus A330. I think that one was nine years old. I think it was the one we came home on. But <laughs> you'd hate my airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but Jeff, your your aircraft is 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 a. How do I put this? The MD is more of a more of an aircraft, not a, a flying computer. If you if you sort of yeah. see, you know, you've you've got cables and stuff that yeah, you, you pull on, do. Uh, not computers. But I just it, it oh, I couldn't believe it. I was just just a little bit upset. I think um, mm-hmm. that we didn't get the Dreamliner to come home on because uh, I was looking forward to uh, even with its problems. Um, doesn't bother me. Um, I was still waiting to uh, hopefully, you know, see what they're like, see if uh, if all the um, the reviews and stuff are true that uh, people said when they fly on them, which I expect they all are. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, oh well, we'll have to uh, wait until uh, we book another holiday somewhere, and uh, I'll sneakily um, pay the little bit extra money and fly with an airline that flies the uh, Dreamliner somewhere. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Perhaps we should fly across to the states. I think that, that perhaps that should be our next um, journey for me and Gemma for our holiday for um, for this year to come across and uh, and share a beer, Jeff. Yeah, speaking of beer, where are your beers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, um, I don't know if, if your uh, your listeners know, but uh, Carlos tried to send me some uh, real ale. Yep. Uh, through the uh, through the post, and uh, it never got to me. Never got to you. I don't you. know where it ended up. No, the Royal Mail, once again, uh, <laughs> not the first time, I will say, have uh, let me down. Um, and well, it's are you, are you sure it was their fault? I mean, maybe it was something over here on my side of the pond. Well, it, maybe it possibly could have been. It possibly could have been, but they seem to have no way of tracking it um, mm-hmm. after it left the UK, which I think is a bit poor, really. Hmm. I think I shall use a courier in future, Jeff, um, rather than the uh, mail service. Yeah, well, just bring some with you when you come over here to the States, and uh, I'll do the same if I ever make it over to your neck of the woods. Yeah, as I've I've said to Jeff before um, in previous communication, we we live literally um, a a one-minute, two-minute walk, one-minute walk from uh, from our local pub, uh, which is has its own microbrewery on site and produces a very nice ale, Jeff. Oh, really I'm jealous. Nice <laughs> do, you, do you have many, um, uh, just changing the subject slightly, from aviation to, to ale, do you, do you have any brewing uh, companies sort of close to you or where you can, you know, go and sample real Well, ales? you know, close is a very relative term. Um, here in the States, uh, everything is... You know, hardly anywhere you go is the kind of community or setup that you can just walk to, you know, get something to eat or get some groceries or get some real ale or something like that. Everything, you have to drive here. And uh, there are some um, some craft breweries here in the Atlanta area. 
And it seems like every every month or so that a new one is cropping up. But so far, alas, none near me uh, as far as walking distance is concerned. But but you can find them in the in the local stores and that kind of thing. So yeah, I've tried that. That is the Blue Moon craft iron. Now, Blue Moon is uh, one that is manufactured, I believe, by the New Belgian Brewing Company in Colorado. I think Boulder. Could be wrong about that, but that's I believe really it's nice. uh, actually. You know what? I think that's actually contract brewed by. Coors in Colorado, but again, I could be wrong. Ah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to get some more ale out. The, uh, the the good thing here, Jeff, is because it's obviously with you as well. It's cold your your um your way as well with the snow and stuff. But here, it's uh, even though it's damp and windy and wet, it's still cold outside. And uh, with all my ales outside, bottled um, ales mm-hmm. outside in the um, in the outbuilding. There's no need for a fridge. Just walk outside, grab an ale, and um, sit in front of the fire, and uh, sit back and relax and read the aviation books. Uh, you're making me jealous again. <laughs> right, next piece of news then, moving on, is uh, regarding Norwegian, um, an airline that flies over me quite a lot. Um, and they are getting closer to introducing cheap transatlantic flights. So Norwegian, uh, who are Dublin-based, um, they're a low-cost carrier here, uh, Norwegian Air, have, they've been granted an air operator certificate by the Irish authorities, moving them one step closer to launching budget flights uh, to the US from London. The US Department of Transportation is in the process of considering its application for a permit to fly between Europe and the US under the EU-US Open Skies Agreement. In a statement issued uh, yesterday, Norwegian, which is um, the long-haul subsidiary of Oslo-based Norwegian Air Shuttle, said it expected to be given the same rights as were given when it operated on a Norwegian license. And once the AOC is transferred from Norway to the EU, um, they hope to start operations. So Norwegian is planning to launch uh, the first low-cost non-stop transatlantic flights from London this summer, if all goes through. And it aims to operate three flights uh, a day from Gatwick to New York and Los Angeles and Florida. And also planning to launch in July um, flights to JFK uh, and Fort Lauderdale as well. Fort Lauderdale. I think I said that right, Jeff. You'll probably put me right if not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that was right. With fares uh, starting from as low as £149 one way, including taxes and charges, which is really cheap. Um, so let's hope that one kicks off. Norwegian has more than 250 aircraft on order, and it has signed an agreement uh, to lease four more Dreamliners, taking the total to 14 in the fleet, um, adding as well to the three of which are already in service with them. So that's good. Uh, let's hope that goes through because uh, it would be good to, um, you know, to have a, a low cost. Well, we call them low cost, uh, a budget carrier flying nonstop flights to the US. Because you probably know yourself, Jeff. It, it does cost quite a lot of money to um, to fly um, from you know from the UK to the states. Um, Yes, it is. And, and I'd like to apologize if you can probably hear that noise in the background. I'm in my home studio here in my basement. And unfortunately, at times, uh, people will use, you know, facilities upstairs, <laughs> uh, like take a shower. And uh, all the pipes 
are right above my head, so I do apologize for that extraneous noise. But Jeff, if the, the people who listen to the podcast, if um, which most of them will definitely listen to your podcast, will uh, will will definitely know all all the ins and outs as to uh, <laughs> <No>. the sounds. <laughs> yeah, I um, uh, Carl's alluding to the uh, Carlos is alluding to the fact that uh, I typically record my podcast while I'm on layover. And uh, I don't have a lot of control over over the sound, and you'd think you'd ha- that I'd have more control over it here at home, but alas, no, I don't. But uh, one time I remember it was quite humorous, uh, not at the time, but I think to a lot of listeners it was. I had set everything up in my hotel room in Tampa, and I was only on the second floor. And uh, right as I hit the record button, the uh, grounds crew started doing their weed whackers and. Uh, uh, their motorized equipment right outside my window. And it was just like, no, <laughs> I'm trying to record a show here. And everybody really enjoyed it. So, But they, they, um, they make the podcast more real, Jeff. You know, yeah, yeah, that's what they say. That's so what they say. Now you're getting a dose of real <laughs> right here in my own house. But uh, speaking of Norwegian, uh, that I don't know if you're, fam- you're aware of it or not, but uh, here in the United States, it's really um, getting the ire up uh, from a lot of the people, uh, including uh, the union that represents my company, uh, the Airline Pilots Association. And apparently by – no, first of all, um, Dublin, I didn't realize that that was in Norway. I thought that was – No, no, no. They they, they, they have a (laughs) – it's it's kind of – they're based in – yeah, in – well – yeah, I'm like using it. a little bit of uh, facetiousness, <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, the sort of basing it. And like, I'm, I, I'm not unlike a lot of cruise ship companies. You know, mm, uh, yeah. you know, registering in one country because of uh, the advantages of that. Uh, and, but they're also using um, uh, hiring people based in Bangkok, um, Thailand, and also employing them with the individual contracts under Singapore's labor laws, and basically, you know, bypassing a, a lot of the. Uh, things to just you know, and it's it's a good thing, of course, for consumers. And and you're representative of those who are paying those very high prices for, uh, especially long range air travel. But it's kind of getting uh, under the skin of a lot of us uh, or a lot of the carriers here because they're basically making it an unlevel playing field, and you know they're they're really lowering their costs, and uh, and a lot of people are saying unfairly. So you know, Alpa's putting out a lot of, um, uh, of information saying that, you know, this is something that we should object to, that we should not allow it, uh, et cetera. So just thought I'd mention that. But, um, I mean, it's always a good thing to provide uh, the best uh, travel fee or rate for the consumer, but uh, not at the expense of, you know, causing harm to the employees of, uh, of many other airlines. So. Do you remember? My... Um, do you remember many years ago, Jeff? Uh, Freddie Laker, mm-hmm. the Skytrain. Yeah. He he tried the uh, the sort of the low cost thing, transatlantic yeah. flight thing, and that um, didn't last very long. But it kind of worked. But um, I think he was um, brought down by um, sort of the sort of bigger airlines, and eventually he went out of business. But it's, it's been tried in the past. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see whether it works this time round. No. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, you know, I, I see your perspective, Jeff. You know, you fly for a one of the major airlines and you're trying to protect your job and that kind of thing. And and I'd have to say, well, yeah, <laughs> I am. Exactly. But uh, I 
and I, I also sympathize with, um, you know, trying because sometimes being in a major carrier, uh, you, you have uh, advantages that uh, some upstarts don't have, and uh, sometimes they unfairly use that advantage to squash competitors uh, that come into the market, uh, for instance, Laker Air uh, and others in the past. But um, I, I think that the, the solution is somewhere in the middle, I'm sure. Hmm. But it'll be interesting to see how Norwegian cope with that and see what they do. But they'll be right. using the Dreamliner. So uh, well, that's the good thing. Anything, you know? anything might happen. <laughs> you never know. Although they've been having a lot of uh, trouble with it. Uh, um, it. Well, I don't know. Is Norwegian Air Shuttle uh, a subsidiary of Norwegian yeah, they're, Air? They're part. Yes, yeah, all part of the same thing. But they, yeah, they have had because um, you you use um, the same awesome website that I do, which is the Aviation Herald. Mm-hmm. And they, they have had um, a few issues on there. I forget what the last one was. I think it was a fuel leak, if I remember rightly. I think on, so, on yeah. And, I, and I, it's been uh, the CEO of the company has been very vocal about his displeasure with the performance of the 787s they've so far taken delivery of uh, on. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and rightly so. You know, they're they're spending a lot of money on these airplanes and uh, they're canceling a lot of flights and, you know, causing a lot of financial uh, havoc. It so, must be costing uh, Boeing a fortune. It, it must. Th- think so. Yeah. It's just, a yeah, sh- it's just such so. a shame because the aircraft to look at, um, you know, I've seen one on the tarmac at uh, Farnborough uh, a few years ago and um, it's a, it is it's just a, it's a fantastic looking aircraft it really is um you know the design of it to the shape and stuff mm-hmm. it is you know it's a brilliant aircraft to look at it's just a shame that um i don't know whether boeing just kind of just stepped just that little bit too far into using you know re, you know new techniques and stuff with the bat, you know with the batteries and other bits and pieces whether that was just a little bit too much to um to progress forward to whether they should have just kept things you know, um, standard rather than uh, using all the new sort of fandangled sort of yeah. technology and They're, stuff. The, yeah, they really did push the technology envelope. And uh, I think that uh, probably in hindsight, they uh, wish now that they had played it more like Airbus uh, has with the 350 XWB, which also shares many of the technological advances uh, that the Dreamliner uses. However, in certain areas, they decided to stick with the the tried and true and the and the more conservative technology. And I think that that's going to work out for them better in the long run. Um, also involved not only the the technology, leading edge technology and uh, materials, um, et cetera, uh, is the fact that Boeing, for the first time with this Dreamliner, started using a lot of outsourced uh, companies and uh, manufacturers to um, uh, manufacture parts of the airplane and uh, different systems of the airplane. And they weren't really, you know, because in the past they had done most of it in house or very few. Uh, extra contractors out there, and uh, this time they were trying to. Uh, I think they may, they may have overreached a little bit in uh, kind of you know utilizing that newer uh, method of manufacture and outsourcing. So that might be one of the problems that uh, uh, is is crippling the Dreamliner. Yeah, let's hope they sort you know get this thing to get the bits and pieces ironed out um, soon. Because um, yeah, like I said, it is a is a really good aircraft. I think it's it's really a nice looking airplane, as you say, mm. Carl. 
Carlos. I'm sorry, I keep wanting to call you Carl, Carl or Carlos. Well, <laughs> which one do you do, like to go by? Well, uh, well, everyone calls me Carlos here. Um, okay. My name is Carl, um, for all the listeners. Um, you know, um, but I suppose because I uh, I do discos. I do. I'm a I'm a DJ, a mobile DJ. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my co- kind of hobby business that I run here and uh, with my wife Gemma, and. I'm sort of known as Carlos um, in in that respect, doing that business sort of thing. And all my family tend to call me Carlos now. Even my grandparents call me Carlos now. Um, and it's it's kind of strange when people do say Carl. I think the only well, the only person who calls me Carl is throwing me off is that uh, you know I'm looking. We're on Skype right now, and I'm, I see your name, and it's spelled Carl. <laughs> so I keep seeing saying that or seeing that, and I keep wanting to say Carlos. Uh, but anyway, whatever's um, easy, Jeff. I don't mind. Okay. Don't well, mind. I was going to say that uh, <laughs> going back to the Dreamliner and uh, its uh, nice looks, uh, I have actually gotten quite up close to one of those—not on or inside of, but uh, taxiing out of uh, uh, of um, Houston's Intercontinental Airport, uh, where Continental United, now one mm. company, United, uh, is operating the uh, the Dreamliner and. Uh, we were taxiing behind it out for takeoff one day, and it really is a, a good-looking airplane. It's quiet, uh, and uh, you know, I just, uh, as you do, hope that they get all these uh, little snafus all ironed out, and uh, we won't have to talk about it so much on our uh, our podcasts. That's it. Yeah, that'll be out of the news phase <laughs> for good, hopefully. So the next piece of news is uh, about London Southend Airport, and uh, this is on the BBC News website. Um, and this is about London Southend opening their new £10 million extension um, on the airport. And the bigger departure lounge, more check-in desks, revamped baggage reclaim facilities, and a new arrivals area, and five more plane stands have been built. The airport said that the larger terminal would be en- enough to ensure higher levels of service and passenger numbers would be allowed to grow. And they also have said that the project will eventually create 300 more jobs due to more planes being based at South End. Um, the airport was brought by the Stobart Group in 2008, and uh, the Stobart Group spent $100 million, uh, on its revamp before it opened in February 2012. And in 2013, the airport handled nearly a million travellers, but has said it hoped to increase passenger numbers to 2 million a year by the year 2020. So London Southend Airport, Jeff, um, is um, actually owned by a haulage company um, in here in the UK called uh, Eddie Stobart or Stobart Haulage. Um, they're kind of uh, one of the largest um road transport haulage companies in the UK and they they own the actual airport and they uh, fly a lot of cargo and, and stuff out of the airport so it's quite uh, quite a strange arrangement Jeff uh, transport company a um, haulage road haulage company owning an airport do you think well you know uh, I guess it's as strange as uh, perhaps a an Indian beer manufacturer uh, owning an, <laughs> an airline you know <laughs> yeah I suppose. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I you know I wonder why uh, are, are they doing it because it's an economically uh, advantageous thing to do, or do they have future plans to use it for something? Tied well, they've got, into they've got their... good rail links to the airport. Oh, okay, and, uh, that makes sense. Their um, Stobart um, have their own railway and their own railway mm-hmm. carriages, and 
they can transport their stuff straight to the airport, straight through the airport onto the aircraft and out. It's quite a good setup that uh, they've got there. They're quite a well-known, a very well-known um, company here in the UK, Stobart, and uh, followed by a lot of uh, a lot of people. So they've, you, you have in the aviation world air, aircraft geeks. Well, they they have lorry geeks or uh, truck geeks mm-hmm. who go around taking numbers and stuff of uh, trucks. But uh, really, yeah. They, so they're like plane spotters, but they're truck spotters. Truck spotters. That's it. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've heard yeah. of train spotters before, but not not truck spotters. Oh That's yes, we have truck spotters here, Jeff. <laughs> oh, wow. Interesting. Well, we probably have them here too. Yeah. So um, that's good news for Southampton anyway. I'm yet to fly from there, but um, I'm definitely going to look into that because that's not too far away from us um, here. Um, They've got quite a lot of flights now going out of there around Europe, which is good news. So last piece of news then that we're going to do this week is from the Travel Weekly site. And this uh, this is a piece of news that I got up on the feed just before we started the show today. Because um, this one applies to you, Jeff, and and this is uh, headlining flights cancelled amid latest wave of U.S. snowstorms. Uh, an additional thousand flights in the U.S. have been cancelled uh, as a second wave of heavy snowfall hit the northeast of the country. This follows around six and a half thousand flights being grounded, uh, together with disruption to transatlantic services to and from New York, Boston, and Washington D.C. The storm has been blamed for at least 22 deaths, including a pregnant woman struck by a snowplow in New York City. And about 550,000 homes and businesses are still without power as the storm left much as 15 inches of snow in the Washington, D.C. region and 8 inches of snow in and around the New York area. Up to another foot of snow is forecast um, to... Well, that was begin uh, beginning this week, that was... And will continue through to this weekend in Connecticut and Massachusetts. But the National uh, U.S. Weather Service predicted that the weather should ease uh, by the end of this weekend. So, Jeff, you were saying earlier you've got uh, you've got you've got the ice your way. Yeah, this is the second time. Um, and now, for your listeners, probably not too familiar exactly where Atlanta, Georgia is. Um, it is kind of in the northern. Uh, third of the state of Georgia and uh, in the southeastern United States, uh, even in the wintertime, the winters are usually pretty uh, mild, Uh, although we do have cycles of winters where we end up getting maybe a snowfall event once or twice in the winter season. But uh, for the most part, it's not unusual that we don't have any snow or ice or anything uh, at all. But uh, when we do have some of these winter systems come in, and uh, one of the things that often occurs is the ice. You know, we can deal with snow, but when, you know, half an inch to an inch of ice is being laid down, uh, it causes havoc because it's not as easy to clear as snow is. And it also tends to bring down tree branches and, and whole trees on top of power lines. And of course, even the power lines, just the weight of the ice sometimes brings them down. And so there's just widespread power outages and, uh, just, uh, you know, driving conditions are almost impossible, and uh, it just paralyzes um, the, the southeastern United States. Well, actually, paralyzes anywhere where you get this kind of uh, condition. Uh, so we've been dealing with that quite a bit uh, this, this year. We had an event two weeks ago, and I was flying a trip, but luckily I left Atlanta 
and uh, did not have to go through Atlanta until the fourth day. It was a four-day trip, and by then, everything had been cleared up. And so this week, however, was a completely different experience for me because this particular four-day trip was one where I was going or scheduled to go in and into and out of Atlanta quite often. And uh, speaking of those thousands of flights canceled, I know that I personally had five or six of my flights canceled. I was going to ask you that, actually, Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so um, it was it was an interesting trip, needless to say. So, but uh, got home last night, and uh, things have recovered here in Atlanta. Now, as you mentioned in that news article, the the storm system continued to move uh, east and northeast all the way up uh, the eastern seaboard in Philadelphia and Washington D.C. and New York City and uh, New England, and uh, uh, yeah, causing a quite quite a bit of havoc. Yeah, we, we like I said to uh, said to Jeff earlier when uh, we we're on the, sh- the start of the show before we started, we yet to have anything uh, really sort of snowy here. We've had a bit of ice, we've had a few frosty mornings, but um, as yet no snow. We've had some up north uh, Scotland way, um, but uh, it's yet to uh, yet to reach us yet, Jeff. We yet to have any snow. We definitely don't have snow at Christmas now. That's for sure. Yeah, it's a very unusual thing for us to have a, a white Christmas here in Atlanta. Um, if we ever do get the uh, the white stuff, it's usually uh, in January or February, sometimes even March. But again, it's just usually a very quick event, maybe an inch or so of stuff on the ground. The next day it's all, all melted and doesn't really cause us a, much of a problem. No. Well, let's uh, keep our eyes on the weather here in the UK. Like I said, this... Uh, We've had some quite high winds here, very, very, very high winds here in the UK this week. Um, doing a lot of damage, a lot of damage on the coasts. Uh, a lot of places been uh, been washed away, and sea defences have pretty much been um, destroyed around some of uh, some of the coasts here around the UK. Um, so, if, uh, to any listeners affected by um, by what's going on with the weather at the moment, uh, let's hope you're keeping safe, your family's keeping safe, and uh, Let's hope this uh, weather we're getting now goes ASAP um, so we can get things back to normal and uh, start to rebuild um, some of the uh, the damage that's been done. Um, and if you've seen on the news, Jeff, if you go on the uh, BBC News sites at the moment, there's uh, sort of coverage, live coverage and stuff of um, what's been going on around the UK. It's been We've had uh, some of the highest winds uh, for sort of 30 or 40 years, I think they were saying on the news feeds and that. I don't know if you've seen them at all on on the uh, TV, Jeff. Yes, I have been uh, seeing reports of the uh, windy weather that you've been receiving there, and I, I can imagine it must be a quite a handful for the the pilots of the uh, airliner. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's coming uh, for landing. There's been some uh, great um, uh, videos on YouTube just lately of the uh, crosswind landings and stuff, Jeff. You've spoken about them on your show before, and. Um, is, is that something you have to uh, sort of tend with very often, sort of crosswind landings yourself? Or? Uh, you know, occasionally, uh, uh, you know, as weather systems move through and, uh, uh, you know, it just depends on where you're flying and what time of year and uh, the weather conditions and such. But uh, it's something that uh, you are trained to do when uh, you start learning how to fly, how to, how to land in crosswinds. And I actually enjoy landing in crosswinds it's uh, it's you know a challenge and i enjoy the challenge unless they're out of limits then of course i don't like them because that makes me have to go around and 
find somewhere else to land. <laughs> <laughs> but you account for that, Jeff. You're a, you're a good pilot. You've uh, you can you have all the figures and the fuel. So you got uh, you always you always have the contingency plan, don't you? Um, yes, we do. Yes, mm-hmm. it. Yes. And I've yet to uh, bend any metal, knock on wood. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I'm, I'm so far so good in my, I don't know, little little over 32 years of flying. Wow, wow. So that's what we're going to bring the news uh, feed this, uh, this week to a close. And uh, we're going to come back to chat with Jeff about uh, his amazing career after this. Do you reckon, Jeff? Would you say that beautiful, was a beautiful sound? That, I'd say that sounds very familiar to me. It does sound quite a bit like the Rolls Royce RB211. Awesome sound. I uh, stood next to one of their at them uh, the engines at the Duxford Imperial War Museum here in the UK. They've got uh, one on show there, which I stood next to and had my photo taken. A really impressive engine, I've got to say, and also yes. powered the TriStar. <laughs> It did, and that's uh, uh, why I've heard it so much. And uh, in Atlanta, when you one thing you can't really um, capture in that sound clip is the the low frequency rumbling and vibrations that you get from that particular engine. Uh, and it was so distinctive that you could be several concourses away from where the L ten eleven had pushed back and uh, pushed back and was starting up. And you could hear that very, very low-frequency rumbling vibration uh, from quite a distance. And it was just a beautiful sound. It's awesome. So, Jeff, like I said, thanks again for uh, joining us on the show. And uh, sure. you're going to uh, just, uh, if you're possible, just run through um, how your career started, Jeff. How, how did, uh, how, where did your passion start from? Was it a, a family thing or a father thing? or no. Actually, I did not come from a flying family. My dad really had nothing to do with aviation unless you count his little little short stint in the um, United States Air Force. Uh, I think he spent four years back during the Korean War. and uh, But he wasn't anywhere near Korea. He was in Germany, I think. And uh, I think that part of his uh, job was to do some air traffic control work. But, you know, I sadly never really had a chance to talk much with my dad about that. Uh, he passed away uh, a little over 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, as I said, I did not come from a military background at all, uh, nor an aviation background. We did have neighbors, uh, acquaintances, uh, friends of the family that lived in our neighborhood. Uh, one was a United Airlines captain. One was a Western Airlines captain. And so I got a little glimpse of um, what, you know, airline life was was like through them. And one of them was actually an avid uh, uh, home-built uh, airplane modeler or whatever you want to call it. He was building uh, an airplane in his, in his house. And so that was always interesting for me to kind of uh, explore what was going on with that. But um, the thing that really hooked me on aviation, of course, you know, most of us, you know, young boys, you know, like – cars or airplanes or anything mechanical. Uh, and uh, I, I enjoyed imagining, you know, piloting 
an airplane and I have all these little airplane models that I'd be, you know, flying around as many of us did at a young age. And, um, which is always, you know, uh, kind of amusing when you're, you know, 10 years old or younger, but when you do it at, in your twenties and thirties, then, uh, people start, you know, really questioning your sanity, but, uh, don't, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But, uh, the, the thing I did remember was going back and forth to, to the Los Angeles international airport. I grew up in Southern California and, uh, just visiting the airport and that whole aura of, of travel. It just had this exotic feel to me and the smell of the jet fuel exhaust, which I still love to this day. Mm. Um, and, and seeing the airplanes landing and taking off and taxiing around and seeing the airline pilots and the flight attendants walking through the concourses and, you know, uh, imagining, uh, all the, you know, exotic places that they were flying to. Of course, now I know that they were probably just going to, you know, Peoria or something, but, um, which is a small <laughs> little city here in the in the U.S. Uh, but you know, maybe some of them were going to exotic places like Paris and London and uh, Bangkok and all these different places around the world. So, I uh, I just my love of airline aviation basically started at that point. I guess just you know going to the airport to pick up and drop off family members. And um, I, I remember from a pretty early age, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I, I actually subscribed to Flying Magazine, uh, a publication, a magazine publication here in the U.S., and started just reading all these different articles. I had no idea what I was reading because they use so many acronyms like VORs and NDBs and all these different things that I uh, you know, wasn't sure uh, what they were talking about. But over time... After reading more and more, I started understanding the context and everything else. And uh, so I knew that uh, that, was, that was something that I wanted to do, at least uh, as, a, as a hobby or, a, you know, something to do uh, as a, um, other than a career. Uh, but then I thought, yeah, you know what? You know, flying airplanes for a living might be a pretty nice career. And I was also, um, when I was 13 years old, we moved to Mobile, Alabama on the Gulf Coast of the United States, different part of the country. Mm. And I was, uh, well, even from a young age, I was involved, involved in music. And uh, that was qu- another one of my passions, playing the piano and the trumpet. And at, uh, w- during high school, I thought that uh, music was going to be what I was going to do for my life. But then I realized that likely uh, the, the best that I could do uh, would be maybe not a great paying job doing something in the music industry, like a band director or something like that, which would be very fulfilling but would probably not be financially rewarding enough for me to be able to afford to fly or have my own airplane or rent an airplane or whatever. So I'm thinking, huh, well, if I flew airplanes for a living, maybe that would give me the financial wherewithal to uh, also, um, you know, enjoy my musical pursuits. And so at some point in high school, I decided that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, try to get uh, a job as an airline pilot and make that my career. And then I realized at that time, this was the mid to late 70s, that the uh, the people that were being hired by the major airlines were mostly people that had served time and were trained in the military. And I, having really not come from a military background, had no idea exactly what that meant. I just, in my head, I'm thinking, I don't want to be a military pilot because I don't want to be living in the barracks and eating in the mess hall. And I don't want to live that kind of life, which I, 
uh, in my head was, you know, the life of a military pilot. Of course, that was all wrong. Um, and I later learned that uh, when after a few years of very difficult engineering courses, uh, my father and his peers had told me and advised me that what you need to do is go to a good engineering school, get an engineering degree, maybe a master's degree in business, and you'd be set. And so off I went to Georgia Tech, uh, the Georgia Institute, Institute of Technology, a great engineering school here in Atlanta, um, and struggled mightily, mightily with the engineering courses. And then I transferred over to Auburn University in Alabama, uh, in-state tuition for my family. And I had some friends there, but it was still very difficult. And I kept trying to imagine myself um, projecting myself doing that for a living. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to really be happy unless I'm doing uh, flying as my career. So I finally came to a point about my second year of college, uh, maybe the beginning of my third year, that, um, you know what, if I have to go into the military, then so be it. I'll just treat it as my um, advanced uh, schooling uh, or, I guess, uh, postgraduate training. And so off I went after I graduated from Auburn University in 1981. Two weeks later, I was being sworn into the United States Air Force and heading on an airplane down to San Antonio, Texas, where, is, uh, where they have their officer training school facilities. And uh, after um, a short stint in a little program just to make sure that I had what it, take to, had what it takes to go through the undergraduate pilot training program in the United States Air Force, we uh, go through like a three-week uh, period flying um, essentially a Cessna 172 and uh, successfully made it through that and then learned how to be an officer for the next three months and then graduated as a commissioned second lieutenant in the Air Force. And then a couple of weeks after that, I was on my way to Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi to start learning how to fly jets. Wow. And uh, that was a tough year. <laughs> I tell you, probably one of the toughest years in my life going through pilot training. But um, um, so after that, I ended up uh, getting my assignment um, flying the C-141B uh, Starlifter made by Lockheed. Uh, and uh, did that for a couple of years. And then I was... Um, I got taken back by the Air Training Command to be an instructor pilot. And so I did that my last four years of uh, my experience in the military. And that all was the groundwork being laid and experience uh, that I needed to get hired by a major U.S. airline, which is what happened at the end of 1988. So you went straight straight to, to ACME then? From the military, I did. Yes, mm. I did. And uh, so, you know, my ti- everything is timing in uh, as far as uh, a flying career. And uh, I've met many, many folks, and I know several of them personally, whose timing didn't work out as well as mine. And so, the worst that has happened to me in my career now, little over twenty-five years uh, for a major airline, uh, is that uh, we had some stagnation. Uh, I did get displaced from you know, a particular position to another airplane. Uh, but that's the worst of it for me. I have not uh, ever been furloughed and uh, I've not uh, been in a company uh, that has folded and uh, is no longer in existence and having to start over from, you know, the, the very bottom rung of a, of a company and then work your way up again. I know several people that have. So I've, I've really enjoyed a very blessed career so far. Wow. I was just looking uh, um, on the Wikipedia 
at the um, the aircraft you flew in the military, the C one forty one Starlifter. That's quite mm. that's quite an uh, a large aircraft, Jeff, to fly. Was yeah, it, was it, it, it? I take it that was kind of a steam gauge um, aircraft well, as such. For the most part, uh, although it was a little bit advanced, again, you know, it was made by Lockheed, mm. and Lockheed with the L ten eleven especially was. Uh, what we uh, what we term not state of the art but start of the art mm. uh, the engineering uh, behind the instrumentation and everything else was it was quite advanced and um, the 141 shared many of those uh, innovations uh, such as vertical tape um, instruments as opposed to the round steam gauge instruments we'd like to call them and uh, it was it was an advanced cockpit you know this was before the glass cockpit days and uh, and I'm not sure, but I bet that uh, the 141, uh, in its later days, after I left the Air Force uh, many years ago, uh, perhaps was updated to uh, reflect the advances and uh, technological advances in instrumentation. I know that the C5, which is still flying here in the U.S., the latest model of it, I think they call the C5M. Uh, if you look at the cockpit displays, you'll you'll notice that they look just like modern uh the the airplanes that are just coming off the assembly line right now the uh, modern glass cockpit technologies um, are being retrofitted for the the c5 galaxy which is uh, like the 141 also made by lockheed a much larger version of transport aircraft uh, one of the largest in the world and uh still flying today but uh, the 141 uh, sadly they retired uh, several years ago that's a in shame fact, in fact, um, it's funny because every time I, I fly a new airplane, um, my kids ask me whether or not the, that one's going to be retired soon because I think every airplane that I've flown, yeah, I think every airplane I've flown <laughs> other than the one I'm flying currently has been retired. <laughs> so um, I do like the tried and true uh, you know, technology, I guess. But uh, going back to the military, um, reflecting back on my experience in the military, uh, number one, being an officer, and number two, the excellent training that I received and learning how to fly uh, is, is priceless. And um, I, you know, am so glad that my path led me into that direction because I found out really, you know, quickly that, uh, you know, I don't live in a, in a barracks and I don't eat in a mess hall every day like the movies that I saw on TV and I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the television stuff and the movies and everything else, you know, the, you just build up this idea of what life is going to be like and it was pretty much being an officer in the military and being a pilot was pretty much like having a, a regular job except that sometimes people shoot at you. So that's the only <laughs> difference really. <laughs> I hope you didn't have that happen to you, Jeff. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. Uh, yeah. the, the closest I, I had or came to anybody firing weapons in my general direction uh, was a little thing back in 1983 where there were a couple things going on in the world. One in uh, Lebanon and in the barracks uh, bombing uh, and also something going on in a, in a little uh, Caribbean island, Grenada, mm. where we had um, some kind of a attempted coup uh, going on there and we had some uh, medical students uh, in some medical training uh, schools down there that needed to be rescued. And so the United States took um, a little action over there in uh, providing some support to get them out and, and a little bit of fighting. But uh, it, it was interesting because, you know, the C-141 is what we call strategic airlift. So, you know, we get the stuff, carry it from 
point A to point B, getting close to the theater of, theater of operations, but not actually uh, in the middle of the theater of operations. That's for the tactical airlift, like the C-130s and uh, those types of airplanes. And we received a, um, a briefing at Langley Air Force Base before we headed down to uh, Grenada to participate in this um, this little contingency operation, I think they called it, not a war. And uh, they were showing us all the uh, weapons that could be used uh, against us, including the shoulder-mounted, mount- um, uh, I forgot what what model number it is, but a shoulder-mounted air-to-surface-to-air missile. Wow. And so I'm looking at all this thinking to myself, wait a minute, the, you know, I'm flying strategic airlift, not tactical airlift. And I'd not ever entertained the idea that I would be in a situation where people could possibly be firing missiles at me or anti-aircraft artillery. And so the trip down was a very quiet one. And uh, the aircraft commander, I was still a second lieutenant at the time, so I was a co-pilot. And the aircraft commander, or what we'd call a captain, uh, was was uh, a veteran of, of Vietnam and had been shot down a few times in Vietnam. He flew the bird dog. I forgot what the designation of that is, but a small high-wing, single-engine, reciprocating-engine airplane that marked targets for the for the fast movers, the F-4s and that kind of thing. And he had been shot down a couple times and uh, rescued. And so finally about halfway down, you know, heading down to the Caribbean, dark, you know, late at night, I said, uh, so what do you think about uh, these surface-to-air missiles? I mean, you know, what if they fire one at us? And he goes, well, now the way I look at it, uh, if, we're, if, if we have any luck at all, it will hit one of our outboard engines <laughs> and that won't take out any of the other engines and we'll be okay. <laughs> okay, well, that's a glass half full kind of, a, kind of a philosophy there. And I continued to just look out the window thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> but uh, as it turns out, uh, the, the greatest danger I faced was uh, holding patterns in the middle of the night. And it turns out that we learned after the fact that uh, – the C-141s doing holding patterns and the C-130s doing uh, holding patterns using the same fix but not communicating with each other uh, and somehow avoiding a mid-air collision was probably the greatest threat that I faced uh, while uh, involved in that contingency operation down there. So wow, it was interesting. You have had a, a sign of fantastic career, Jeff, and you, you still have a fantastic ongoing career um, with mm-hmm. what you do flying for Acme and that. So the the MD eighty series aircraft you fly then with Acme then um, what uh, what you like to fly? Well, you know, having flown you know Lockheeds and Boeing's, um, and then getting displaced off the uh, the seven twenty seven because Acme at the time uh, was starting to retire the airplane was getting old, and uh, I was kind of near the uh, bottom of the seniority list uh, on that particular jet and uh, the second round of displacements hit me and the only airplane that I could fly at that point was or as a captain in Atlanta was the uh, Mad Dog and it just had a really bad reputation amongst pilots Um, and I don't know why honestly because I was expecting just a terrible experience and I kept waiting for it to get bad and it never did and now you know not being the co-pilot being the captain has its advantages. It's a lot easier job uh, as far as the actual duties that you have uh, flying the the airplane. But uh, of course, we have all the responsibilities and the 
the obligations of the safe conduct of the flight and that kind of thing, but more of the uh, leadership role than, you know, doing a, a lot of the manual work. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you, because the and you alluded to this earlier in the show, uh, that uh, the airplane that I fly is very, very old technology. It uh, utilizes cables and pulleys and all kinds of mm-hmm. doodads and such that um, operate the control surfaces and et cetera. And we, the only thing that is hydraulically operated as far as control surfaces on the MD-80 series airplane is the, um, is the rudder, full-time you know, hydraulically uh, activated rudder. And uh, we also have a component of our elevator that kicks in at a certain point to give you kind of an, a kind of like a power assist. But otherwise, the elevators, you know, the pitch control of the airplane, the ailerons, which gives us the, um, the banking control, uh, they're all controlled by what we call control tabs, cables from my actual controls in the cockpit that go all the way back through the wing and out to the ailerons to a little tab on the trailing edge of the aileron that actually uh, aerodynamically positions the bigger control surface, the aileron, to move. And it's a different feel. It's, uh, it takes some getting used to because you're, when you're used to flying an airplane that has hydraulically uh, controlled or manipulated control surfaces, it's a different kind of feel than when you are actually really feeling uh, the aerodynamic forces on the control surfaces, whether they be the ailerons or the or the elevator. Now, the MD-90 uh, does actually have a powered uh, elevator in addition to the powered rudder. So pretty much everything on the tail is hydraulically powered on that particular model. But the ailerons, just as the MD-80 series, are, are controlled uh, completely manually what we would call in other airplanes manual reversion so you know if it, and and that would be an emergency i mean in the, in the 727 if you lost your hydraulics for your control surfaces you would have a a means to uh to activate the control surfaces but it would be very very sluggish and sloppy and it would be something that you would not want to do for real but that's the normal operating um uh position or uh, the the normal operating procedure for the airplane that I fly now, and it's uh, I like it actually. It took me again, took me a while to kind of get used to the different feel, but now I love it because I can really feel uh, the the aerodynamic forces on when I'm hand flying the airplane. Now, of course, when you have the autopilot connected, you don't feel a thing. So wow, do you do you tend to? Uh, I mean, because Acme have have uh, quite a few of the um, the MD eighty you know, ninety series aircraft in mm-hmm. in the fleet. Do you, do you tend to, um, to to have the same aircraft on on a lot of occasions, or do you get a different one each each flight? Or is there a particular aircraft that you you see the you know the registration number and think, ah, oh, I flew that one yesterday or you know last week? You know, honestly, now maybe that maybe some of the pilots do pay attention to that, and I don't. And that's a great question, by the way, and and it's been asked. Um, by several of my listeners, and uh, I don't know if I've actually had a chance to give a, uh, a, a detailed answer, so I'm glad you asked it. And uh, I honestly don't even, um, don't even use a logbook anymore because everything that I do for my company is automatically logged as far as our blockout times and block-in times, our flying times recorded. It's all monitored by the computer system, and so if I ever want to go, for instance, twice a year when I have my FAA uh, medical uh, physical, 
I have to fill out a form and it says, okay, what, what's your total time? And you know, how many hours have you flown in the, in the last six months? And so that's really the only time I ever go into the computer system and, and see how many hours I've logged. And I don't keep a, uh, a logbook and so I don't have the registration numbers logged. And I don't really pay close attention to, oh yeah, ship number 903. I remember flying this last week and it has this little quirk. I, I honestly don't do that and really there isn't a lot of of difference between the uh, no, I suppose, the I suppose all the flight decks are very all, all the same as you know, the aircraft there's no you know sort of different you know, switches or controls or anything everything is is the same regardless of, of what aircraft you go on well that's true for the MD88s that we fly now mm-hmm. the the MD90s that's a different story because we uh, my airline was the launch customer for the MD-90 and ordered something like 14 or 15 uh, of those back in the late 80s and early 90s. And then um, in the recent years, um, the managers of our company decided that uh, it would be a good idea to snap up all the used MD-90s around the world, uh, many of them being uh, used by uh, Chinese airlines, Japanese airlines, uh, just carriers from all, all all around the world, and because they weren't specifically ordered by my company, they were configured a little bit differently. Differently, and so now I'm experiencing that uh, weird feeling that you get into uh, an MD90 cockpit and you look around, and not all the switches are in the same place. I mean, they're in mm-hmm. the general area, but some of the systems are a little bit different here and there. For instance, the cargo fire suppression and warning system is, is a little bit different and uh, the traffic collision avoidance system the TCAS, TCAS system yeah. is different in some of the MD90s so it's it's interesting it's challenging and it's kind of sometimes disorienting yeah because they, they upgraded the they put different engines on the MD90 didn't they were, um international aero engines the V2500 engines aren't they yeah the, the 2525 or something like that yeah. the 2500 series of the uh, international aero Engines and th- those are great engines, by the way. Um, and but all of our MD90s are all the uh, the I uh, the IAV uh, engions or IAE. But they, they must I be like little pocket rockets, I think, with the power supplied by them. Um, they are because they're a higher bypass mm. engine than the uh, the Pratt and Whitney's that we use on the uh, MD88s. And uh, yeah, it's nice. And, the, and you know the the nicest thing about them, Carlos, is the uh, the reverser system, the the MD80 uh, Pratt and Whitney engines that we use use the uh, the buckets, buckets. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. open up in the back, and they're you know they're somewhat effective, but the first time you get into an MD90 and they they have the translating cowl uh, mm-hmm. type of systems that you know the panels move out of the way and everything's basically internal to the engine, the the reverse uh, actuators and the reverse system. And because I guess because of the high bypass nature of this engine, uh, when you go into reverse, it feels like you are actually tapping on the brakes, like you're actually using brakes to stop the airplane. That's how effective they are. And it really gets your attention the first time you go, you look at the other person going, did you just put the brakes on? And they they look at you and go, no, (laughs) it's just the reverse is just so good on that airplane. So that's, that's one of the positive things i can say about the md90 yeah i didn't realize this uh, they, they actually hold up up to 172 passengers on the md90 which is right. is quite a good sort of capacity really for a, for an aircraft of that size 
Yeah, we uh, use it. Our airline um, uses a, a configuration that adds up to 160 passengers total, 16 first class and 144 in the in the back. Uh, you've got so. more leg room. <laughs> more leg room for the economy. Passengers are always a good thing. Mm-hmm. Rather than having the uh, maximum capacity. Um, right. Which is uh, always um, a plus for when you fly economy with um, with various airlines that I've flown with. Some some are uh, a bit tight tighter than others. Yes. Um, whereas Emirates um, economy, uh, which we've flown a few times now on the 777 and I said the 380, they seem to be quite generous with their um, legroom and economy, which is nice. Yeah, I think that, uh, and then I think some of the, conversely, some of the Asian uh, carriers tend to uh, have much tighter, uh, you know, clearances and, and uh, they put more seats in. Um, and, you know, it's it's a balance. Uh, airlines are here in the, the United States are always tinkering with, you know, the, the seat pitch and that kind of thing and trying to maximize the efficiency and profits. But... Mm not trying to make it so, you know, like it's a torture fest in the back. And I've ridden on airplanes where, you know, and I'm not a big person. I'm like, you know, five foot eight, five foot nine. So I'm not a, a super tall person. But even for me, sometimes it's pretty tight in the back when you're sitting in an economy. And uh, my company also has something they've been experimenting with for the past couple of years called Economy Comfort, which is uh, basically the same economy seat, but uh, a little bit more space between the rows and uh, a few more amenities and uh, so it's something between regular economy and uh, first class or business class yeah we have something similar with a lot of the airlines in the uk they they class it as premium uh, premium economy mm-hmm. um you pay a little bit extra but you get um slightly you know slightly more leg room um and i think some of them offer a better sort of entertainment uh, package mm-hmm. as well with the seat Right. Um, yeah, premium economy, and then obviously you have the business class and the first class package. But uh, luckily, um, a couple of years ago, when we flew on our honeymoon, just after we got married, uh, we flew an uh, Emirates to um, Dubai, and then from Dubai to Mali, to the Maldives, and uh, managed to blag myself and Gemma an upgrade into business class with Emirates on the 777. And um, that was uh, that was amazing, Jeff. Really amazing. The the uh, the whole experience is is just uh, another world um, experience, mm-hmm. really. And um, it uh, the you know the package that they have in the, in business class with Emirates is is fantastic, Jeff. It was just unreal. Uh, you know the food, the um, the the comfort, and and all the 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 thing, the seats, and the, everything was just absolutely fantastic. But um, that was good. I did try again this uh, this year or the, um, a few weeks ago when we did go to Dubai. But um, to be fair, the uh, check-in desk operator she did search, she did look uh, genuinely look um, to see if she could uh, bump us up um, a class. But uh, unfortunately, didn't get it this time round. But uh, it's great, Jeff. Business class. Um, I, I should imagine you you probably do you get to have a sort of um, nip into business class if you're. Uh, Dead head and back, or um... <laughs> well, I think there is a I, if if you're doing long haul or long range flying, I think that uh, they are required if you're going to deadhead for. I, I think there's a breakdown of the number of hours uh, that they re- they require you to be seated in the business class section. But um, you know, I do mostly domestic flying, and uh, when I'm deadheading, 
uh, I'm in the in the back <laughs> with everybody else, <laughs> and uh, you know, and so I get to experience. It's a good thing, you know. I get to kind of experience what everybody else is experiencing, yeah. and that's really actually helped me uh, with you know being up in the front. We're you know behind, as I say in my podcast, uh, the view from my side of the cockpit door. Mm. So I'm on that other side of that heavily fortified cockpit door and the, you know the seats I have you know room to move around and not a lot and in, in the MD88 and MD90 but you know more than you have and um, but it gets me it gives me a chance to be in the shoes of the passenger as far as oh, communications yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's one of the things that uh, I really uh, promote as much as I can amongst my and try to model uh, amongst my fellow pilots uh, is that the fact that, you know, good communication with the passengers is critical and good communication with uh, the flight attendant uh, cabin crew as well. And uh, a lot of pilots, unfortunately, that uh, that I fly with and have ridden in the back of their particular flight um, don't do, don't always do a very good job of that. And mm. uh, so, you know, it, it's good to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the passenger uh, wondering why you know we're still sitting at the gate and you know we're well past our departure time or why we're holding and what does that you know what are the implications of that um, uh, if we're having a mechanical problem you know good communication is critical uh, with the passengers to explain what is going on mm. and uh, so I think yeah, it adds it adds to the enjoyment of the flight. You know, you've you've spoken about this on your podcast quite a few times before about, um, you know, your your um, uh, when you do your talk from the flight deck to the to the passengers and stuff. And I I think it's important because I've flown you know a, num- a number of times um, over the years, and I mean I know being an air- aviation geek like me, I, I love to hear as much information as I can from the flight deck. You know, it, it sort of adds the fuel to my um, enjoyment of um, flying. But you do get a lot of airlines and pilots who just say the normal, you know, welcome on board. I'm I'm such and such, and uh, on the flight deck with me is, and, and that's all you hear. And then mm-hmm. you hear another little bit when you land, uh, just before you land, and that's it. And I think for a lot of people, most of the people I talk to would prefer to hear, you know, um, if you look out of your left window now, you'll see a such and such monument or a, a river or a special um, mountain. or And I'd, I'd prefer to hear more interaction from the flight deck, you know, with, with the passengers. I think one of the things which impresses me, again, with Emirates is um, a lot of airlines do the same thing as well, is with their seatback entertainment uh, screens, they have a, a moving map, a sort of moving GPS map, and you can follow your flight on the map, um, and also that it comes up on the screen with uh, your flight level, um, the speed you're traveling, the outside air temperature, and I think that's that's one of the things that adds, you know, adds more enjoyment to the flight, especially for me anyway. Yeah, I agree, and that's one of the things that you have to balance as uh, the pilot. If you're flying an airplane that has that kind of an entertainment system, along with the the display that you're talking about, the movie map display and the other flight uh, information, people are watching movies, sometimes watching live TV. They're listening to music using the entertainment system. So you don't want to be coming on the PA system every. Five or ten minutes, because then people start getting irritated because you keep interrupting their entertainment. So uh, now, 
the good thing for me is that the airplane that I fly doesn't have an entertainment system on it. Mm. So I know that the only thing I might be interrupting is somebody who has a personal device watching a movie or listening to music <laughs> or whatever. And they're probably going to ignore me anyway. And, and a lot of the pilots that I fly with that don't, you know, communicate uh, well or at all uh, are ones that say, well, you know, these business class flyers, they don't want to hear this this stuff. And I'm thinking, well, you know what? Just like you sitting there during the safety briefing, uh, you're probably not really paying close attention to what she's saying uh, during that. And uh, I, I just figure that the business class people, the people that fly all the time, the frequent flyers, um, if they don't want to hear, you know, our route of flight and looking out the window at this and that, they're going to ignore it anyway. You know, so um, I'm not worried about that. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about that passenger that gets to fly maybe once a year, maybe mm -hmm. twice a year. And to them, and an aviation enthusiast like yourself, you know, this may be a big deal. Yeah. And, um, you know, you want to make it the best experience as you can. But, you know, you have to balance it all. Yeah. Well, so, Jeff, we're gonna just, I'm just going to cover one more uh, uh, question I was going to, uh, subject I was going to talk to you about before we, sure. um, before we finish the show. I know uh, my wife is eager to get in here and start uh, cooking me tea. She's got uh, rather an exciting meal. And plan Ooh. for me this evening. <laughs> Sounds good. When, which, what time should I be over? No, no, you're you're fine, Jeff. No, we'll we'll carry we'll carry on for a minute or two. I'll, I'll wait until she bursts through the door from the front room. I just okay. I just I just hope she's put some coal on the fire so it's nice and warm in there. But yeah. um, I was going to say, Jeff. I'm um, fingers crossed. Um, hopefully this year, um, I hope to get back into uh, learning to fly again. It's something that I started when I was 21, and mm -hmm. um, due to sort of work commitments and and having the sort of shift patterns I do work at the moment, it's been hard sort of to try and progress over the years to, to carry on and learn to fly. But hopefully this year, um, touch wood, as we say, um, I want to start again in the summertime. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of looking at the cost and stuff of learning to fly. There's a, a very good school not far from us um, based uh, at uh, an airport. Uh, well, it's a, a mini flight school, uh, a disused sort of uh, a wartime airfield at Ella near Beckles and uh, they run a flight school there and I was just wondering what the sort of prices whether you know the prices how much it costs to learn to fly um, in the states where you are on that but over here um, we have the two different kinds of licenses that you can sort of go for one one of which is the PPL uh, which you probably know know of and we also have the uh, NPPL, which is um, a, um, a license you can go for, which is uh, slightly less hours that you have to do to, to gain the license, but there are some restrictions. But just converting into dollars, Jeff, uh, the PPL, um, if, if I complete the whole course here, uh, in dollars would uh, convert to $10,500, and the NPPL uh, works out at seven. And a half thousand dollars is is that sort of the norm, or because uh, a lot of people I talk to and a lot of stuff that I've heard over the years, everyone always says it's cheaper to learn to fly in the U.S. Well, you know, I I'm not a good authority uh, or resource to get an exact uh, figure for how much it costs to fly here, but uh, I, I would imagine that it probably is a little bit less because. Uh, the United States tends to be pretty general aviation friendly mm. uh, compared to a lot of places around the world. Um, but uh, I, I think that uh, the the rates or the prices that uh, or costs that you just mentioned probably uh, adjusted for U.S. dollars is probably about the same uh, here as well. And you know we have 
part part uh, 141 schools, which mm-hmm. are like more formal flying schools, uh, have formal instructors and the you know a formalized uh, uh, syllabus of training, and then we have you know go to your local airport that has a, a fixed base operator, an FBO that uh, you know, has a guy that uh, flies a Cessna 152 and you know kind of does it on a on a, a per student kind of basis and not uh, a formalized kind of school. And I think that you might be able to do it, you know, for a little bit less money that way, you know, than the, the part 141 school. But um, I think that um, probably somewhere around the, the $10,000, $11,000 point is, you know, for your instruction necessary to get your private pilot's license here. But I'm, I, again, that's a, that's a guess. Yeah, I don't know for sure. I mean, the hourly the hourly fee that um, I mean, this is this is quite general for all the flight mm-hmm. schools around here. But their their hourly fee um, for uh, an hour's lesson in a Cessna one seven two, if I if I convert it into dollars, works out at two hundred and fifty dollars for an hour in a Cessna one seven two. Now that is higher. I think that here you'd probably um, you know be able to shop around and find an airplane. Uh, it, that uh, uh, equivalent, uh, a Cessna 172, a 150, something like that for around 110 an hour and then maybe a $50 wow. per hour for instructor fees. Uh, so somewhat under under the uh, $200 uh, level, I would imagine. Again, I'm not a, I did not uh, learn how to fly uh, through that uh, system uh, in the general aviation world. I basically let the U.S. Air Force uh, teach me how to fly. Mm. And of course, th- when I did actually rent an airplane for my initial flight lessons, you know, back in the, in the mid seventies, uh, prices were much <laughs> less expensive back then. <laughs> so Jeff, before we finish the show, then I'm going to ask you a question. Um, this, uh, this is a question that, uh, I've been thinking about, um, sort of asking you, um, and now you're here, I might as well ask mm-hmm. you while you're here. Oh, so I, <laughs> I can't avoid it, I guess. <laughs> no, no. So given, given the choice, Jeff, if you had mm-hmm. the choice of any, any, any commercial passenger aircraft in the world that you could fly, you could just walk walk up to now, hop on board and take control and fly, what would it be? Well, let's see. If if they had been still flying, I probably would say the, uh, the Concorde. Uh, that would have been uh, kind of a, a thrill to fly a superso- supersonic transport aircraft. And very likely that uh, in my remaining career, I will not have the opportunity to fly a supersonic transport aircraft. Uh, I think that there are plans, uh, you know, in several areas uh, or several companies are making plans for uh, perhaps supersonic uh, transport again for passengers, but that's probably going to be in the 20, 30 year time frame from now. And I have about 10 years left in my career. So, Realistically, I'd say that the one airplane I'd really like to fly or at least be at the controls of uh, at least once and perhaps maybe my last few months of flying, if they're still around, would be the 747. I've always uh. looked at that airplane uh, as a as the kind of, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, that would be an airplane that I really love the opportunity to uh, be at the controls of. Have, has Acme Acme got any 747? Yes, we do. Um, we have a handful of them. And there was a rumor that I heard. I liked the rumor um, <laughs> that uh, somebody was saying that they were talking to, uh, you know, a guy that knows a guy <laughs> that uh, 
has uh, his job is to go out and try to find airplanes that uh, whoever is hired to him, kind of like a scout, like a baseball scout or yeah. a, uh, a, uh, a football scout or whatever. And uh, they go out there and see what's out there on the market and perhaps something uh, in the in the boneyard or whatever that's being mothballed at the time and uh, what's available. And uh, the rumor that I heard was that this person was working or hired by my company to see how many 747s out there that they could uh, they could find. So I love that rumor because anytime you introduce a new airplane into a an airline fleet, uh, the the bigger the airplane, the more it affects everyone within the pilot seniority list. Now, if we add airplanes like we've been adding uh, on the other end of our you know fleet, the smaller airplanes, uh, it it does have a, a slight effect for those in the lower part of the seniority list. But when you get a big one, if you add, start adding Airbus 330s or triple uh, sevens or 747s, whatever, uh, that actually tends to kind of bring everybody up and, and make, uh, give people more opportunities. So I'm, so I'm, I'm guessing you can't, uh, I guess you can't go up to your boss at Acme and say, um, Hey, any chance I could, uh, have a little go in a 747, please. <laughs> well, I could, I guess I could do that. But uh, I'm not sure what his reaction would be. <laughs> How did you get in my office? Probably the first reaction. <laughs> I, you know, I guess I, I could get pretty pretty close probably if I just uh, tried to jump seat on a flight, mm. uh, on a 747 flight. But uh, at least I'd be in the cockpit perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but not at the controls because we're not allowed to do that. Uh, you, know, you have to be fully trained uh, to get behind the controls of one of those jets, whatever it may be. But um, I don't know. You, you know, I still have, as I said, a little under 10 years remaining in my career. And uh, the the way things are projected to go with uh, a lot of retirements here in the next three to five years, I think that things might actually start accelerating enough that I might have the opportunity perhaps before I, uh, before I hang up my captain's hat and uh, – <laughs> You know, get a chance to fly that uh, beautiful airplane. Oh, fingers crossed, Jeff. Let's hope that uh, let's hope that uh, that comes off for you, and you Thanks. can uh, you can uh, try it before they they all they all go, just like the poor TriStar. Yeah, I know. Oh. What a shame. Right. So coming up to an hour and forty-five minutes, Jeff. Not wow. bad, hey? <laughs> Not as long <laughs> as your shows. I must say, I, I I've been listening to your show from from day one. Um, it is a stable part of my of my diet i love the show jeff i think you do a, a really awesome job um i think you really do have to give yourself a pat on the back because um you know i know i speak to a lot of people who listen to your show and we all agree that that is great jeff you do a really fantastic job um so hats off to you I'm, I'm well here. thank you very much I, I i enjoy it's a labor of love as i i mention all the time it's just I love talking, uh, as you can tell, listeners out there, they're thinking, when is this Captain Jeff guy going to shut his mouth? <laughs> because he can just ramble and ramble on. But uh, no, I, I really do enjoy uh, doing my my show, and I, I feel like it's a way for me to give back uh, because it's been a wonderful career so far, and mm. uh, I just have such a passion for flying, and uh, I want to help as many people as I can that want to pursue this as a career and also, just to give as much information, uh, communicate what's going on with what we do on the, on the side of the cockpit door that you can't see. And I, uh, as I said, I, I love it, and I I really do try hard not to 
uh, go on past two hours, but sometimes, as you know, Carlos, uh, uh, it, it does go on. And, you know, sometimes I get this audio feedback from people that just goes on and on and on. And just <laughs> That's probably me, Jeff. <laughs> no, just Carlos, uh, I just want to let uh, Carlos's listeners listening to the show right now know that he's been a big part of my uh, feedback, which is most, I'd say probably three quarters of my show is uh, answering feedback and listening to uh, audio and email and reading email feedback. And uh, Carlos has been great about oh, always thanks, uh, sending me fantastic, high quality <laughs> audio feedback. So thank you, Carlos, for uh, being such a big part of the success of my well, podcast. And well, like I'm I said, so Jeff, glad that I inspired you. You to did definitely start this. And, uh, and I, I listened to this show all the time and oh, i think thanks. that you're doing a fantastic job thank you jeff we well like i said we are in our infancy we're um we're trying you know to try and improve each time and stuff simon um simon is was obviously completely new to to sort of the podcast scene as such and he's 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 you know he's 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 getting he's getting better he's getting really good and uh, he's a great guy to work with simon is um he loves his um he loves his you know ref stuff his his red arrows <laughs> and that he's he's an absolute massive fan of the red arrows like you, you wouldn't believe is really good mm-hmm. um and uh yeah we like i said we you know you inspired you know along with, with um a couple of the other podcasts that i've been listening to from day one as well for me to start this and sort of where you give your perspective from being uh an actual you know line pilot for for acme i like to think that i can give sort of my view from from someone who sits the other side of the door um, to where you sit, and exactly. With, with you know, with the knowledge and and the the love that I have of aviation, but um, but no, I look forward to uh, episode one oh one oh four, Jeff. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I hope to uh, actually as soon as we get off the the call here and uh, we we'll wrap up this show, I'll continue uh, editing the audio from uh, 104 that I recorded a few days ago and was interrupted many, many times. But, <laughs> um, but, so thanks so much for having me on. Carlos. Yes, it's Jeff, a, thanks for coming a, on the show. Uh, that's absolute pleasure having you on the show, really is. And um, yeah, thanks so much, Jeff, for, for taking time out of your uh, day to come on the show with me. It was all my pleasure. Excellent. So don't forget, um, you can uh, download our show via iTunes and also uh, via Facebook as well. We're on Facebook, um, Plain Talking UK. So Jeff, where can uh, where can the listeners find you? As if they shouldn't already know, because they should do. But where can the listeners find you? Well, as you mentioned, there are many, many great aviation podcasts out there, and I listen to as many of them as I can as well as you do. Um, so, you know, I'm just one of many out there. And if you're interested in hearing me uh, ramble on for, you know, a couple hours a, at a time, uh, you can find me at airline. Make, make it three guy. hours. Make it three hours. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, there, I still get occasionally those folks that, uh, <laughs> like one said, did you know you can listen to your show at 1.5 times speed and, uh, you don't have to listen to the first 30 minutes because you don't miss anything. And I'm thinking, well, I, I, I think I responded by, by saying, thank you for the very, for the backhanded compliment. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, airlinepilotguy.com is my website. If you want to subscribe, of course, you can find me as, as well as uh, Carlos and Simon's great podcast on iTunes. And I wanted to say before we ended the show uh, that uh, the listeners out there that are subscribing via iTunes, and even if you're not subscribing via iTunes, 
please head over to iTunes and leave a review. And I'm, I'm looking at myself right now in the mirror. I need to do that. Uh, leave a review for your your podcast because <laughs> it really you. makes a difference. Um, I mean, if you listen to Carlos's and Simon's show and you enjoy it and you think others might as well, um, then just take the you know two or three minutes that it takes to uh, do a review on iTunes and trust me, it really does help. Uh, people will be uh, made aware of this fine podcast of theirs, and uh, they'll the the numbers will grow and it'll get better and better. So. Uh, and you're on Facebook as well, aren't you, Jeff? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I always appreciate it when people take the time out to do it for my show. And uh, I also uh, do a video of me sitting in my hotel room recording my podcast. If, you're, if you absolutely <laughs> really have nothing else to do but sit in front of your computer or whatever yeah. uh, for a couple hours and watch me blab on, um, I have a YouTube channel as well. Uh, just do a search for Airline Pilot Guy, all one word. Excellent. Yeah, we're we're yet to try that yet because, as you probably know, Jeff, we do we record the show in our kitchen here, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the cottage, um, at the kitchen table, um, which is uh, makes for for an interesting studio, especially when the doorbell rings or the phone goes. But uh, well, you know, as they say, Carlos, it's all part of the charm. Yes, and, and I really do believe that. And you know, hey. I, I don't see how a kitchen could be any worse than my hotel room. All you see is the beds behind me and the pillows and, <laughs> you know, lamps and the, your standard hotel room affair. Yeah. So uh, so yeah. don't forget then uh, you can uh, catch us uh, on Facebook as well as um, on uh, search for Plain Talking UK um, as well as the Airline Pilot Guy as well. You can catch Jeff on Facebook as well. And uh, – don't forget, email the show at uh, plaintalkinguk at hotmail.com. You can send us an email or just go to the Plain Talking UK website at www.plaintalkinguk.com. You can uh, click on the contact tab and send us an email through there with some feedback. We'd love some feedback. Um, we, we we don't seem to get much feedback, Jeff. I don't know why. We, never, we don't get much feedback. I think... Um, I think that everyone's listening to the Airline Pilot Guy podcast, you see. <laughs> They're all sending it to me. <laughs> They're all sending it to you. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, hey, if you're listening and you listen to my show, don't send feedback to me. Send it to Carlos and Simon because they need it and they want it. Yeah. I mean, not that I don't. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes it's overwhelming. And uh, and you know what? Honestly, I'm I'm guilty of not sending you feedback. I, I, kept, I keep saying to myself, okay, send feedback to... Carlos and Simon send feedback, you know, and then I just get busy and I, I don't do it. So, so this is how bad it was. Carlos actually said, okay, well, if you're not going to send me feedback, then come on my show. <laughs> <laughs> so but here you're, I am. You're a busy man though, Jeff. You're a busy man flying, uh, flying aircraft. That's um, definitely, uh, def- I definitely, um, you know, look up to you in that respect. You do a fantastic oh, job. At, at least in that respect. Yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> And the podcast as well. I shall, like I said, I shall be uh, definitely waiting um, to download uh, episode 104 as soon as us on iTunes, ready to uh, listen to when at uh, next week while I'm uh, working. So, but on that note, then we're going to bring the uh, show to a close. Episode 11 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. Thanks for listening, and uh, as always, uh, do send us some feedback and. Carry on listening to us. We are uh, trying our hardest to bring you a, a full of fully content, happy, wonderful, marvelous show each week. And hopefully, uh, Simon will be back uh, in episode twelve, uh, which we hope to record next week. 
And as I said before, um, get well soon, Lynn. Um, we wish you a speedy recovery. And uh, like I said, Simon should be back and uh, we'll, he'll be back in full air show and military aviation uh, splendor. So, Jeff, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute awesome thing. I'm, I'm literally buzzing off the walls here. It's, <laughs> it, it's been brilliant. Well, thank you uh, as well. It's been a thrill for me. I don't you know, know if you believe me or not, but it's always a thrill to be on other people's shows. It really is. And I also would like to thank Simon. I, uh, best wishes for uh, your wife's recovery. And uh, thank you for letting me take your seat in, uh, in the show. So, yeah, excellent. So on that note, then we're going to say goodbye. So from me, Carlos, it's goodbye. And from you, Jeff. Uh, I usually say wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Oh, I love that part. Okay, (laughs) take care then, Jeff. Take care. Okay, bye-bye now.